Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 430 with my guest therapist, Lori Gottlieb. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website and the social media handles you can follow us at are MentalPod, so that would be MentalPod.com, and MentalPod uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Also a Facebook page, uh, Facebook.com slash MentalPod. Uh, some, some great topics uh, touched on in this interview with Lori. Uh, we talk about the ways that we get in our own way or you know shoot ourselves in the foot and some of the common issues that people encounter in therapy. And then there's, you know, how, how uh, themes often reveal themselves in the surveys. Uh, some I'm doing some of the struggle in a sentence surveys, and there's some really great ones about anxiety, depression, and especially uh, food issues. Uh, it's been an interesting week. It started off kind of... Uh, kind of a downer. I had to let go of a friendship, a long friendship that I've had with somebody and not by my choice. It was one of those things where you make plans with somebody and they're just constantly canceling at the at the last minute. And I just felt like, uh, I think this person wants to let go of this relationship. And um, it it was starting to hurt my feelings. And I just got the sense that this person wasn't somebody that would say, if, if, if I brought the topic up, would say, yes, I, I am no longer interested in, in being friends um, for, for whatever reason. Uh, and God knows my mind spun uh, 
the thousand different reasons why they might be trying to let this friendship go. But I ultimately had to say, I, I said to myself, self, you can't control what other people think of you. You can only decide where the bar is for what you will accept in a friendship. And for me, somebody that cancels six times in a row, um, that's not acceptable to me. And, um, and I felt some sadness around that. And when I had therapy on, on Monday, uh, I usually know that I need therapy when I don't want to have therapy. And it was fruitful to talk about it because I was able to, to say out loud, I'm disappointed. I'm sad. I feel shame. And it helped let go of a lot of it. And I, and I certainly do feel some sadness around that, but I have enough people that do love me and respect me in my life that, um, that I don't let that define me. And that it, it is what it is. And thank God there's so many, so many people in the world that we will always be able to find people who we do vibe with and who will respect us. So I lost a friend, but I gained a friend, uh, a four-legged friend, uh, and it, it, it was, I've decided to name her uh, Grace, and um, I'll explain why. I There was a, a young guy that I was mentoring am still mentoring in uh, one of my support groups and he was going through some some personal stuff uh with his his girlfriend and needed to um leave you know at least for the weekend just to get out of there and i said why don't you come stay with me and so he did but he said you know i've got two dogs with me i was like dogs are welcome would love to have a couple of dogs and so he came and one was the dog that he's had for a couple of years and the other was a stray that he found so funny she knows i'm talking about her she just came up to me oh and you you are a piece of work and uh she's everything that i was looking for in a dog's and he said yeah i was just uh in the in the front lawn and I and I felt something on the back of my leg and I thought it was a spider and I turned around and it was her just rubbing her nose against me and she had a chip in her I took her to the vet and she had a chip in her but the previous owners uh, uh, apparently didn't want her she's about three years old she's she looks like she's probably a cockapoo um, cocker spaniel poodle poodle mix about 15 pounds white hair and a little ball of love. And she's, she, I've never met a dog that loves having its belly rubbed or snuggling more than her. Right now, she's trying to get on my lap. No, go lay down. Go lay down. Go lay down. Uh, and so I just felt like the universe was, those of you that are, are regular listeners know that um, I lost one of my dogs. Uh, well, it died. So we so weird when we say I lost somebody, um, like two years ago, and I'm still a little bit heartbroken uh, about it. And as much as my place feels empty, and and I no go lay down, and and I want a have wanted a dog, 
I, of course, do that future tripping thing where I imagine that, well, that dog's going to eventually die and then I'm going to have to feel this pain again. So I've just, I have not sought out a dog. And I just felt like when, when this guy came over to stay with me and brought her, like this was the universe saying, okay, we'll, we'll bring a dog to you. And I, I said, you know, let her stay with me for a couple of days. After he left, I said, let her stay with me a, a couple of days and, and let me think about it. Because I was the one that, that brought up um, potentially adopting her. And I have a fenced-in backyard. And I thought it was fenced in very well. But apparently, little Houdini here, I was uh, out running errands, and I come home, and she's nowhere to be found. She's not in the house. She's not in the backyard. And I am like, you've got to be kidding me. And she has no tags on her. She's chipped, but it's to people that don't give a shit about her. So I'm thinking, that's it. I am never going to see this dog again because nobody's going to know where to return her to. And I'm standing in the front yard just it's hitting me like a ton of bricks and all of a sudden (laughs) these two guys come walking by with four dogs on leashes and she's one of the dogs on the leash I said did you guys see a stray they go this one right here I go oh my god yes said yeah she was she was one street over we were wondering where she came from if I hadn't been out in the front yard at that moment they might have passed by taken her to the pound. She might have been put down. Who knows? Maybe they would have adopted her. But I just felt like it was a moment, two moments of grace. Um, Her coming to my house, being everything I wanted in a dog. And then that moment where she escaped and I just happened to be there. (laughs) She was walking by. I love how dogs just throw their lot in with whatever is going on. Oh, we're on a ship? Sure. I'm on the back of a motorcycle? Great. They just are so adaptable to whatever is going on. But um, So I spent an hour patching up any gaps in the fence that she might get through. I go to run errands again and she has gotten through the first gate. It, it's it's like a four inch, not even four inches, probably three inch gap in the fence. And so I'm going to have to do some more work. But it's been great having her. And my place just feels so much warmer when we watch TV at night. She just, she lays on my chest and, oh, it's just... I'm very happy. I'm very happy. I want to read a couple of surveys before we uh, get to the interview with Lori. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself, I'm no amateur, I'm a Lexapro. Uh, about his depression, he writes, smell the flowers, why? They're just going to die. About his anxiety, I feel like I'm right and wrong about everything at the same time. Oh, that is so good. So good. Uh, thank you for that. Anne writes about her depression. Sometimes crying, sometimes angry, sometimes absolutely nothing. That's the worst one. 
about her anxiety, like my mind is on a roller coaster ride, but my body is sitting in the bathtub eating mashed potatoes. <laughs> that might be Hall of Fame. That is so good. Oh, and this one about her compulsive eating today doesn't count. <sighs> that and that really could be applied to any compulsive behavior or or addiction. God, before I quit drinking, it was. I went months knowing that I needed help, but I would tell myself, tonight's going to be the last night I'm going to drink and get high, and tomorrow I'm going to get sober. And I believed it for months and months and months. Uh, any ideas to make the podcast better? Please, please, please find a guest with depersonalization uh, slash derealization disorder. Uh, I believe we have recorded somebody with that, with that one. Um, if there's ever a topic that you want to know if there are episodes on, Google mental pod and then the keyword that you're looking for and stuff will come up. Maybe it's an episode. Uh, it, it might not be available anymore if it's in, if it's older than two years. Uh, but there also might be a guest blog topic on it. Uh, this was filled out by Smiling Misanthrope, and about her anxiety, she writes, Sprinting on a treadmill set faster than I can run. About her bulimia, I can reach deep into my throat and pull out all that is dirty and sinful and disgusting and wrong. Why is that such a bad thing? About her compulsive eating, when I leave the supermarket, I don't know which of my purchases will last until tomorrow. Ah. <sighs> guys are so good at filling these out. Thank you for that one. A guy who calls himself too high to cry writes about his depression. Severe clinical depression feels like I am stagnant, dirty dishwater that's been sitting in my cup in the sink for too long. About his anxiety, that nice person who walked past me and smiled and said hi will turn around and cut my throat. Uh, a snapshot from his life. When my first dog died, I remember staring out the window at the electrical towers and purposefully tried to dry my eyes out to try and cry because I knew I was supposed to. I think instead of dry, I think he meant to type uh, cry, cry my eyes out to try and cry because I was. I knew I was supposed to. I don't know. I'm not sure if that was a typo or not. Either way, I think we get what you're what you're saying. I can't decide whether or not to have uh, Grace, Gracie. I haven't decided which one I like more, Grace or Gracie. I went through a lot of, of uh, I first, because she's kind of vanilla covered, I th colored, I thought about naming her Nellie. And I thought about, well, let's name her something that when they go to the vet, I get to laugh because I hear somebody have to say her name, uh, like Miss Universe or Cher. Oh, and I'm embarrassed to say that I call her princess a little more often than I would like to admit. This was filled, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself mediocre at best. And about her depression, she writes, my depression feels like being pulled into a current and trying to keep my head above water while my friends have fun nearby, not noticing a thing. Oh, to finish my thought, I can't decide whether or not to have uh, Gracie in the room when I record because I don't know if she's going to be disruptive, but if I put her in another room, then she might 
be barking at people walking by or other dogs or whatever. Are you <laughs> right now? She's she's got her legs up on my legs and she's pawing at me and licking me. I know you want to get up. Go lay down. Go lay down. We're doing a thing for the people. We're putting on a show. No. Go lay down. No. No. Go lay down. Uh, about her codependency. Every time I look at my dog, who is healthy, I think he is going to die. A lot of those have been coming up. You know what you should do, though? Move near electrical towers, and then if your dog does die, uh, you won't cry. Just, But you have to stare at them. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Myro, which uh, is a great product. Uh, I tried it when they advertised with us, I don't know, maybe a year ago, and I have since become a huge fan of it, and I subscribe to it, and it's it's a deodorant, and it's different because the scents are awesome and very creative, but it's a naturally effective deodorant, and it's uh, it's a blend of essential oils that release over time, and there's barley in there, which keeps you dry. But the most important thing, in addition to the smell, is that there's nothing toxic in it. There's no aluminum, uh, there's no parabens, and you can choose a scent, the color a case that you want, and you get a refresh every three months delivered right to your door. And you can switch scents, pause, or stop whenever you want. And because it comes in a refillable case, it reduces plastic waste by approximately 50% compared to typical drugstore deodorants. Uh, I'm a huge fan. I love it. And uh, to get 50% off your first order and get started today, for just 5 bucks, visit mymyro.com slash mental and use promo code MENTAL. That's mymyro.com slash mental and use promo code MENTAL for 50% off your first order. Again, mymyro.com slash mental. Today's episode is also sponsored by online therapy, betterhelp.com. Um, like I told you in the beginning of the episode, uh, Monday, I talked to, to my therapist, Donna, uh, about what I was going through and she's so good at walking me through helping gently to pull the things out of me that I don't want to talk about. And it's, I get so much clarity on it and I feel so much lighter after my sessions with her. So if you've never done online therapy, I think it's worth checking out. I'm a big fan of BetterHelp. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part because then they'll know you came from the podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. They'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor if they have one that is appropriate for you. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And then uh, finally, this is a struggle in a sentence, uh, which I think actually could be an awful some moment. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Redwood Red. And she writes, um, my dad chose to live across the country from me. I am an only child. I didn't meet him until I was 13. Uh, 
I'm now 45, and my dad says to me, I really wish I could have been there for you as a child. My heart leapt, thinking, wow, now that he is aging, he's finally able to say a little something to me along the lines of, I'm sorry, I didn't know how to be a dad, etc. I look over at him, daring to crack my heart just a speck, as he finished the sentence with, I would have never let you get fat. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with therapist uh, Lori Gottlieb. Uh, You're a licensed uh, marriage and family therapist. But you've been a lot of things before this. You worked in the... entertainment industry you were a journalist um what did you do uh specifically in the enter oh and you went to medical school for for two years uh so many questions before we um get to all of those what were you doing in the entertainment industry you mentioned that you worked on the show er so i was uh working on series at nbc i was a junior development executive at the time I got you. One of the suits. One of the suits. Yes. Exactly. So what led you to want to do therapy? It was nothing that I had ever envisioned doing. But in retrospect, I realized that everything that I have done uh, is related because I've always been interested in stories and I've always been interested in the human condition. And I think when I was telling stories first in the film industry and then when I moved over to television, we were telling stories about the human condition. And then um, in medical school, of course, those were real stories. Those weren't those weren't stories about, you know, that we were making up. Those were, you know, real life dramas. Um, and when I moved into journalism, I got to, I got to spend a lot of time with people and ask them a lot of questions about their lives. And often as a journalist, you get to ask questions that you can't ask in polite company. Isn't it the best? It's the best because you, you know, people just answer your questions. Yes. Nobody, nobody sort of, you know, hesitates. Um, so, um, you know, and I found that really fascinating because I wanted to tell these stories. And part of the reason I wanted to tell those stories as a journalist was because I wanted people to see that they weren't alone, that a lot of other people were experiencing something that would resonate more broadly. Um, but then I, I had a, I had a baby and, um, I had loved being a journalist because I could work from home. 
But then you have a baby and there are no verbal humans to talk to <laughs> during right. the day. And the UPS guy would come with all these deliveries because I was always ordering diapers and things like that. And I would be like, hey, how about those diapers? And he would be like backing away to his truck, you know, and I realized that I needed I needed to have colleagues and I needed to be out in the world. And so I called up the dean at Stanford, where I had gone to medical school and asked her, if maybe I should come back and finish up and do psychiatry. And she just laughed at me um, <laughs> in a very nice way. She, you know, she was said, you know, you're welcome to come back. But do you really want to do that with a baby? Do you want to do residency with a baby? Oh, my God. When what you have always been interested in has been the relational part of the work. And if you are a psychiatrist, you can do talk therapy, but you're mostly going to be prescribing medications and seeing people for 15-minute appointments. So she suggested that I get a master's degree in clinical psychology, and that way I could do the job that I really wanted to do. And it was the the best advice um, because now I feel like with my writing background, what I do as a therapist is I pretty much edit people's stories. So people come in with a story, and it's kind of a, a story that they've been carrying around for a very long time, what we call faulty narratives. And I help them to kind of tweak that story and, and look at, you know, who are the major characters in your life and who are the minor characters and who's the protagonist and is the protagonist going in circles or is the protagonist moving mm -hmm. forward? And What are the themes? What are the negative self-beliefs? Right. What are the obstacles? Right, exactly. What are the ways that you're shooting yourself in the foot and you don't even realize it? You're supposed to be the hero of the story and you're the one getting in your own way, yeah. which is often the case, no matter it, their external circumstances. And and so often, I, I would imagine, news to the person who finds out that they've been getting in their own way because most of us, myself included, sp spend a lot of our lives angry and frustrated and thinking that it's other people's faults, not realizing that we have choices. Right, right. So, you know, I think a lot of people come to therapy and their main issue is that it's somebody else, right? It's their, it's their parents or it's their partner or it's their child or it's their coworkers or their friends or whatever it is. Um, and so, you know, that the idea that, you know, hell is other people. And, and granted, the world is filled with difficult people, right? right. Most of them share our last name. So, you know, <laughs> um, but, um, you know, but sometimes hell is us. And I think that what I, what I really want people to see is what choices are you making? What role do you play in this drama of your life? Um, because you can change that. You can't change them, right. but you can change yourself. I mean, it, that is, at the core of so much, if anybody's going to make forward progress, why is it so fucking hard? Right. And also, why do I keep ending up in the same place? You know, different people, different circumstances, but same place. Why do I keep ending up angry, frustrated, feeling unloved? You know, whatever their issue is alone. when they come in alone. You know, why does that keep happening? And it can't be that, you know, that it's only everybody else. It's mm -hmm. what are you doing out in the world, you know, to so that you're not finding these things that you want? How can we help you find how you want to live in the world? So let's say you have a, a patient come in that there's no trauma. Um, there isn't any even drama going on in their life, but they feel an emptiness, like something is missing, that they're just going through the motions. How do you begin to explore what what things are you kind of looking to um, look underneath? 
Right. So some people will come in because there's a feeling of stuckness or something feels off, but they can't really identify what it is. And I think for those people, um, they're not, they don't have a lot of access to their feelings. They just, they just get to a place in life where they start to feel like, something's wrong, but they don't know what. And for those people, I really help them to access, well, what is going on inside? You know, what is your inner life like? And often they have these really robust inner lives that they didn't even know about. And it's so exciting for them and, and kind of, um, you know, they're afraid too, because it's right. like, what is all this? What, you know, what is all this emotion? Um, but it's, it's a really, it's a really unique experience when somebody comes in and they, they, they don't have anything under there. Everybody that I've ever worked with has something going on inside, whether they realize it or not. Uh, there was an episode we did with uh, Dr. Janice Webb, and that was a revelation for uh, not only myself, but for a lot of people that heard the episode, um, because as I'm sure you know, emotional neglect, um, well, I'll, I'll ask you, talk about emotional neglect and, and how and why it can often fly under the radar. I think that for people who have experienced emotional neglect, um, they, they, you know, it's kind of like a fish doesn't know anything but, but water, right? So, right. you know, what do you know but your environment? And so people who, you know, never really experienced the kind of connection that comes from emotional, you know, emotional connection, um, they just think that's the norm. And do you mean transparency, uh, healthy communication, uh, lack of judgment, people creating a safe space for each other to, you know, have feelings, you know, without uh, telling the person you shouldn't be feeling that. Right. Well, I so emotional neglect, I, I mean, I, I think, yes, I'm not sure how you mean it. I, emotional neglect to me is when, you know, for example, one of the patients that I talk about um, in the book is um, a woman who her parents were very much didn't pay attention to her. You know, they just didn't seem that interested in her and they had their own problems and, you know, but, but she just thought, why, why are they not interested in me? Why do they not care about me? Why are they not wanting to spend time with me? And she was an only child and very alone with older parents. Um, so that to me is emotional neglect. And, and in that case, you know, she didn't really have a sense of what does it mean to connect with somebody else? Right. And also what is the norm? They have no idea, None. you know, like, how do you talk about your feelings? What do you do when you have a feeling? Right. Um, what do I do when somebody at school was mean to me? How do I, how do I handle that? I can't talk to my parents about it because they don't, they're not really engaging with me around that. Yeah. The, the lack of, um, there being any kind of language of emotion, even if it's, not abuse, uh, and that that was kind of what I meant when I talked about uh, emotional neglect. Is is really just kind of the it's a desert emotionally. There isn't necessarily overt abuse going on, but maybe the parents are solely focused on that child achieving grades or really kind of performance based tasks, and then that's when emotions are shown by the by the parent. And other than that, there's just really not an interest. And it's very much, uh, we need you to be a success. Um, you know, we, we want somebody that we can be proud of when we're around the other adults in the neighborhood. And even though that might not be explicitly stated, I think it doesn't take a genius of a child to figure out probably by the time they're eight or nine, that that's what's important to the parents. And, in the absence of having emotional discussions, how does that child begin to get a sense of 
their self-worth. Who am I outside of my grades? Right. It's it's the parent's job to figure out who the child is. And How do they do that? And I think if you're if you are curious, I think you have to have a curiosity about your child and also not have a pre-existing idea about who that child should be, like in the case that you're talking about. You know, there are lots of parents who think, well, when I have a child, my child's going to be whatever it is. If you're an athlete, they're going to be an athlete. If you were great at school, they're going to be somebody who excels academically. Um, but your child is going to be your child. And you have to get to know who that person is, that that person is separate from you. Right. And so many times the people that I see in therapy, their parents didn't realize either because they were, you know, however they manifested it, whether they were withdrawn from their children or whether they were overbearing with their children or they were overtly disappointed or tacitly disappointed. Um, in some way, their child knew, got the message that they didn't measure up. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it was a revelation to me that all attention isn't good attention. Right, right. That there can be unhealthy attention. And uh, I suppose in the parent's mind, the well-meaning but um, kind of emotionally misguided parent, in their mind, they're guiding their child. They're protecting it from a lifetime of pain and failure. But talk about, in reality, what they're actually doing and what the repercussions of that can be. This is such a great discussion because um, I actually wrote a, a long magazine piece for The Atlantic called How to Land Your Kid in Therapy. And, uh, <laughs> and the subtitle was um, Why Our Obsession with Our Kids' Happiness May Be Dooming Them to Unhappy Adulthoods. Oh, my God. I love that. We will put a link to that uh, under the show notes for this episode. And I also want to uh, plug your book, which has another awesome title, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Um, we'll, we'll get to that later. So, um, yeah, but, but you're right about, um, you know, I think that, that parents, um, you know, they, they think that they're going to protect their children, that they can kind of control what's going to happen with them. And what happens is the kid never, uh, develops a sense of agency. The kid never says of independence of independence. What do I like? What, what, how, who am I that's different from my parent? How am I the same as my parent? What are my likes and dislikes? What are my talents? What are, what am I not so good at? There was in the article I talked about, there was this one person that I saw and she said, you know, when I d- wasn't doing well in math, my parents got me a tutor to do well in math. They said, Oh, you just learn differently. That's why, that's why you're not bad at math. And she was like, I'm bad at math. Why was it so hard for them to just say, I'm bad at math, but I'm good at all these other things. Right. You know, why couldn't they, why couldn't I be bad at math? I don't have to be great at everything. Um, but her parents were, you know, like thought it would hurt her feelings that it would somehow harm her self esteem. If, um, you know, if, if they just said, yeah, she's, she's not an A student in math. Yeah. You know, so what? And it's not where her passion lies. And she doesn't, and she doesn't care. So, right. you know, the fact that it the would parents be different if so much. It would be different if that child wanted good grades in math. Right. If that child said, I'm really struggling, I need help. That's different. That's being attuned to the child. But if the child says, you know what, I have a lot of other priorities and I'm mm-hmm. just fine with where I am in math. It's not going to be the thing that I do in life. Why would you, why would you put your child through that? Okay. Then let's take, let's take an example because there's so much gray area and so many things. Let's take an example of a kid that really wants to get into a good college, but is getting D's in math. Mm -hmm. Is it then bad that that parent would say, well, if you want to get into a good college, you should have a tutor um, would they? Would it be appropriate for them to say, would you like us to get you a tutor or we're going to get you a tutor? 
if the kid wants to get into a competitive college and the kid isn't meeting the criteria for that, then, um, you know, it's part of the parent's job is to teach and guide. So you can say, look, I'm going to give you this information about these are the grades that people tend to have who get into these kinds of colleges. You're not getting them. Here are some ideas for support. If you're interested in any of them, we will get it for you. You let us know. And that puts the child in control because then if the child, you know, the child has the information, the child, you can also have the child meet with the college guidance counselor and they'll tell the kid the same thing. And then, you know, it's not going to help to force something on the child. If the child really wants something, then give them the supports that they need to get it, but then let it come from them. Yeah. Why do you think parents so often are afraid to let go? I think for a lot of reasons. I think some of it is, you know, there's this great um, paper that was written by Selma Freyberg a long time ago called The Ghost in the Nursery. And it's about how we carry our own stuff from childhood into the way that we parent, but without realizing it. You know, a lot of us see what our parent, what we wish maybe our parents had done differently. And we say, I'm never going to do that when I become a parent. But yet we do. And we do it, maybe it looks different, but we're doing something very yes. similar without realizing I it. I see that a lot. People determined to swing the pendulum the other way, but it's still too much of a swing. Right, right. There's no, there's no balance. Or sometimes they're doing exactly the same thing that their parent did, but they don't, it doesn't look the same and they don't realize that they're doing something very similar. In other words, they're being very controlling, but it looks different. Right. Um, so... One of the things that we were talking before we started recording and one of the things that we want to talk on, talk about are the ways that people shoot themselves in the foot. What are, what are some of the most common ways that they do that? I think they get, uh, they get into a pattern that they don't realize, uh, they're in. And so, for example, um, taking the case of somebody that I saw who she kept hooking up with the wrong guys. Um, and she couldn't understand, you know, she kept thinking, well, all these guys are jerks. They're just, you know, it's, it's the guys. That's what the problem is. But it was who she was choosing. And she would gravitate towards something that felt familiar to her, which was someone who was going to be unreliable, someone who was going to be hard to, um, you know, really connect with. Um, and she, a challenge just just like her dad. It was, it was very much, I mean, it was almost a classic. It was very much like, like her dad who, you know, would, you know, it was that it's like the slot machines in Vegas is the worst because, you know, it's like intermittent reinforcement. Sometimes you, it's, you know, they say in these, in these experiments. Right. And so the same, same thing with these guys. Right. And there was the same thing with her dad, which was like, sometimes he'd be very present and very there and she would just soak that in. It was delicious. And then other times, he would be just completely AWOL. And those were the guys that she would pick. Mm. And she didn't realize that she was making a choice every time she picked someone. And that she, the signs were there. You know, it was, it was like, it was almost like they had a sign on their forehead. But she just, you know, she was just so, it was like neurologically programmed into her that I gravitate toward these kinds of people. Yes. Her fetish was distant eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it, it takes a while, I think, for people to realize that they're even doing that because they think, oh, I would never do that. I don't want to be with anyone like my dad. I want to be with someone reliable, someone who who can be present and show up. But that's not who they're choosing. Yeah. And, and, and they hope that, well, maybe that person just needs to know from me that they're not reliable enough, which then is its own entrance into, into crazy making is thinking that you can change that person well, and right. waiting for them to change. 
Right, right. And so, and so when, when we went through, um, you know, when I went through therapy with her, um, you know, she finally came to this place where when she finally realized that she wouldn't be able to change who her dad is, she started picking different guys. And, and how did that happen? The reason I ask is, is because a, a dynamic that I see a lot in one of my support groups, uh, where we focus on intimacy and communication, uh, many of us early on, we come in there and we are only interested in people who are emotionally unavailable and we are bored or disgusted by people who see us and feel us and are present and love us. How does, how does, how did she get to that place where she wasn't grossed out by the guy who was just totally there, eyes open, ready to accept her? Right. I think what, what you're describing is so important because so many people, you know, like from the outside, if, if you look in at somebody who is really wants to be loved, really, you know, wants to have something very different from what they grew up with, and then someone shows up who could give that to them, and they're like, no. Nope. Not interested. Yeah, they're boring. They're boring, not attracted. You know, <laughs> we have nothing in common. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. There's something called cherophobia, which is fear of joy. And How do you spell that? It's C-H-E-R-O-P-H-O-B-I-A. Okay. Um, and it's, it's basically this idea that for them, joy isn't pleasurable. Joy is almost anticipatory pain because... <laughs> Once they, once they get a taste of the joy, like in this case with this woman, her dad, it was very joyful when he was present, but it's always going to go away. Oh, yeah. And that's the problem. And so joy it's to them is danger. It's a height to fall from. Right. Yeah. Right. So don't, don't even, don't even get one's hopes up, right? Don't even, you know, because it's, it's very hard to, um, to say, I'm going to be vulnerable with this person who wants to be vulnerable with me because I know that, you know, the piano is going to fall from the sky. Right. Um, so, uh, so I think that what happens is as a protective mechanism, they avoid those people. So they don't, they're not doing it consciously. They just, you know, they sit across the table from someone on a date and they say, yeah, he's so boring. Yeah. Because he's actually really present and interested in her. Right. Uh, so she choosed, uh, she was choosing people who were emotionally unavailable. Then she began, as you said, to stop hoping for the water to be in the dry well with her dad. And did she just quickly become more interested in guys that were emotionally unavailable? Was it, was it simply the act of letting go of the expectation for her father to change? Or was there other work involved for her to get to that place where she, her, in her body, she could feel an attraction to the, quote, boring guy. I like to say that in therapy, change happens gradually then suddenly. So it was a long process uh, at the beginning. Um, she also, uh, you know, drank too much, but didn't really think she had a problem with that. And, then, you know, um, and was uh, there an addiction? Oh, yeah. Present? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, there was. And she finally, you know, came sobered to that up. realization and sobered up. Yeah. Um, so there was that going on. Um, there was the whole thing with um, she was 
she was uh, she met somebody in the waiting room and who actually would come with his girlfriend sometimes to see somebody else in our suite. And, um, you know, he was bad news in every way. <laughs> and every time I would open the door to the waiting room, I felt like I wanted to give him like a look like don't don't even try it with her. But of course he did. Um and, um, you know, she had, she had to resolve some things with her parents, but it was all a process. Yes, she, she had to resolve things with me. I think one of the interesting things about therapy is that I don't know how much people realize when they first step foot in the room, how important that relationship with your therapist is going to be. So study after study shows that the most important, uh, factor in the success of your therapy is your relationship with your therapist more than their training more than what they specialize in, more than how many years of experience they have. Those things all matter, but they don't matter as much as the relationship. And what people do outside of the therapy room, they will inevitably do in the therapy room with the therapist, whatever kind of, you know, behaviors they they impose on others, um, they'll impose on me too. And and so I think for her, we did a lot of work in the room about, you know, what was happening. And she, she thought she was addicted to me. For the longest time, she would not acknowledge that she had a problem with alcohol, that she had an addiction. Her addiction, as far as she was concerned, was to me. Mm. How did she confuse the two? Um, she felt like, you know, she... You she, were dressed like a bottle? <laughs> she felt like, you know, it was really hard for her to go the week without therapy. Um, she wanted to, like, email me in between sessions, you know, that kind of thing. It was hard for her. She felt like she was she was addicted to therapy. She wouldn't even say to me. She would say to therapy. I gotcha. Um, but, um, you know, because it was hard for her to talk about her feelings of connection with me. You know, she, that, that was too vulnerable for her. So she would say, I'm addicted to therapy. She would never say, I'm addicted to you. So it, it almost sounds too like she had gotten a taste of connection and she wanted to feel more of that spark, but didn't realize that quitting alcohol would be necessary for her to not be numb and feel life to be able to grow. Is that a fair? Right, exactly. And, and interestingly, she would, she would um, quit me. Um, on multiple, almost the way that someone tries to quit an addiction, um, sort of cold turkey. She'd, she'd just like come in one day and say, I'm not coming to therapy anymore. <laughs> she'd bolt from the room, um, pretty much. And, and then, you know, she'd end up back. And that's why it seemed like an addiction to her, even though it was so, sometimes things are so, you know, we, from the outside, it happens with all of us where other people can see something that we can't see. And I think what we do as therapists is we hold up the mirror to people in a very compassionate way, yeah. but also in a real way, which is I want you to look at your reflection and I want you to just see this and don't, don't turn away from the reflection. Don't judge yourself. Don't self-flagellate. Just look at this because if you can look at this reflection, you might be able to change something. You might be able to make things easier on yourself. And what should, did she discover in herself that she had minimized before in, in terms of things that were great about about her because uh, oh, I'm, I'm yeah. imagining so, so that she, she so she would never report anything I would have to fish for things that were going well in her life and she was actually highly functional um she was you know successful at work and she had a lot of friends and you know she was she she looked from the outside very very functional um but when good things happened to her, I wouldn't hear about them. And so I started to get suspicious, you know, in the way that, you know, and I don't mean suspicious like I don't believe her accounts of things. Right. I just mean that 
I was noticing that, that the way that her mind worked was it was weighted toward the negative. And it was very hard for her to report anything. She, she had, you know, she got this great promotion at work. I didn't hear about it till right. months later when I inquired about it. Yes. Um, because if you share that, then you curse it and then it's a greater height to fall from. But right. if you stay at curb level, the fall doesn't hurt as much. And right. so many of us live decades of our lives with that belief, even unconsciously, it just feels scary to put ourselves out in the, in, in the world and open, you know, be seen. Right. It goes back to that whole cherophobia that, that, that anything good feels very precarious, that it will go away. Um, or even to, to acknowledge she, she, someone was drowning in a pool and she saved them. And she's like, yeah, it was nothing. <laughs> she wow. saved someone's life. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I think for people like that, you realize the, the deficit of, you know, what they didn't get, um, and what they just don't know that, that that's part of the, the fabric of life, that it's not all good or all bad, but that you can talk about both and it won't curse either. And it won't, it won't affect the outcome because, because, you know, you said something about yourself that was positive. It doesn't mean that someone's going to, you know, have the wrong impression of you. Yeah. And and when you grow up with uh, parents that are disinterested or critical to embrace parts of yourself that are positive or any achievements, not meant to be confused with bragging, um, it, it's, it's kind of a gross feeling. It's scary. It's like walking out the front door naked. Uh, it's like, wow, I am open to a lot of criticism by doing this and it's so much easier to stay cynical and uh and self-hating right and then other people don't get to see the beautiful parts of yourself so other so other people couldn't see these parts of her you know she was she was the funny cynical person um but other people were going on to have relationships and other people were going on to have you know the things of 20 something late 20 something adulthood and she was starting to feel left behind are you comfortable talking about your personal struggles? Sure. Yeah. I did in the book. Yes. That's that's why <laughs> I figured but, so. but I just I just wanted to uh to make sure what are some through lines in your in your life? I, clearly we don't have enough time, you know, for for you to share all of your life struggles, but what are what are some of the themes and maybe greatest victories or greatest disappointments you've had in doing work on yourself, finding your truths? I think that the the greatest theme has been, um, you know, realizing that when you're an adult, um, there are things you can change and there are things that you can't change. And I think this happens with, with therapy patients all the time too, which is, you know, how do we deal with the pain that we carry around um, as opposed to trying to just like get rid of it? that you can you can have things in your life that are painful but that doesn't mean that they have to inform what happens next and i think that that was a big shift right so i think like when i was much younger um the idea was that i want to go to therapy to get rid of the pain mm. and then everything will be great and what was the pain around um, i think the pain around you know childhood stuff you mm -hmm. know what happens when you feel how you feel about you know your parents who did their best but maybe didn't see you the way you wanted to be seen. Mm. And then you um and then you get older and you start to say, 
oh, you know, I can't change that. And also, what else can I see about my parents now that I'm an adult that I couldn't see before? Because I'm not, I'm not dependent on them the what way did, that a child is dependent on their parents. And you start to see them, especially becoming a parent. Mm-hmm. You start to see how hard it is to be a parent. I can't imagine. Um, and, you know, people used to talk about that all the time, you know, before I had a, a child. I was like, what? What is so hard? <laughs> you know, like, how can it be so hard? And then I had a child and I realized, wow, it's really hard. I find it hard to look at. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't even imagine <laughs> I pass by a soccer field and I'm like, I need a nap. Just the idea of sitting through a kid's soccer game. Well, there's the there's this sort of like physical toll, right? But I'm talking yes. about the emotional part of being a parent that it will bring up every vulnerability that you have ever struggled with and it will bring it right to the surface. Um, and so uh, that's why I brought up ghosts in the nursery before because you don't realize that's going to happen. But the beauty, the other side of that is that you start to develop a lot of compassion for your own parents is that you start to see that, okay, this is what might've happened. It wasn't so personal to me that they were doing their best. This is what their issues might've been, you know, their struggles as parents. Um, and here are my struggles as parents and we all have struggles. Um, it wasn't that, that I, that I, you know, became sort of, um, you know, that I minimized, um, you know, whatever pain I experienced, but it was more that I could, I could have a different relationship to it. I see. And it, it was very liberating. Was it that you were holding on to it or you didn't want to fully feel it? What, what? I think I wanted to get rid of it. And I realized that you don't. By you, not thinking about it? By, yeah, that by, I just, I just sort of magically wanted it to go away. I see. Um, and part of it, part of it going away was that I wanted to get from my parents things that, I hadn't gotten as a child, but when you're angry at your parents, um, it's very hard for them to give you anything that you want because nobody wants to deal with an angry person in that way. And I, I realized that there was another way to approach my parents so that I could have an adult relationship with them that feels so much better and that isn't about what I did or didn't get as a child, but about how do we want to have a relationship with each other as adults? And it can be incredibly um, healing. I mean, what foibles did you find in yourself being a parent that allowed you to have more compassion for your parents? I think or that, any vignettes that you can kind of uh, recall yeah, that highlight yeah. it. I love stories, so sure, any any time you can you can uh, give a real life example is is awesome. I could, I could give you a million of of them from being a parent. Where um, you know um, I remember we were um, we were in a, a mall with my son, and he was in his stroller, and he had um, he had had colic as a baby, where so he wasn't. You know, he would never sleep and, and he was just crying all the time. And I felt horrible because I couldn't help him because he had to sort of outgrow it. And the pediatrician was giving us all these sort of ways to help him, but nothing was working. And I wasn't sleeping. He wasn't sleeping. Um, it was postpartum everything. Oh and, um, and then, and then, you know, we were at the mall and he was just screaming and everybody's looking at us. And everybody is, you know, it was like this shaming. It felt very shaming to me where everybody's looking at us and they just want this baby to shut up. And I like cannot, and I'm trying to like leave with him, but he won't go in the stroller and I have to hold him, but he's like squirming. And it was just this horrible moment. And I remember feeling in me this rage, this absolute rage, like I have to take some deep breaths or I don't know what I'm going to do. 
like I, I felt like I was going to hit him or I was going to, I wouldn't, but no, I'm saying no, like, you were going to put like, him in the wishing well. It was, it was this, this thing where I just like, I hated him in that moment. Yeah. And people don't talk about this. You know, they won't talk about that, you know, when your child is just like pushes you over the edge. Um, and so between, you know, the sleep deprivation and the postpartum hormones and then the, all the people in the store and they're looking at me like I'm a bad mom. And, and again, it's probably all my projection. They probably, you know, weren't looking at me that way, but they were all looking and coming over and like giving each other looks. And, um, and it was just, it was just one of those moments. And in those moments, you can kind of say, you know, it's really hard. It's really hard. And so. I can imagine that when I was young, I had many moments. You know, kids have moments like that. And it's, and when you get older, when you're displeased with your parents, you're, you're calling out your parents for certain things that maybe they don't want to look at. Um, I imagine that must have been very hard. Let's get back to the, um, ways that people shoot themselves in the, in the foot. We talked about, um, you gave the example of the the woman who kept choosing guys that were emotionally unavailable. What are, what are some other uh, examples that you think kind of highlight a universal struggle a lot of us have? Um, I think that, uh, you know, what I was talking about with not being able to experience joy, like there was a woman who came to me who was turning 70 and she had very much um, regretted her life up to that point. She was basically alone in the world and she had created the situation without meaning to where she was alone in the world. She was pushing people away. She was pushing people away and she didn't realize that she was doing that. Um, you know, she didn't realize how she was coming across. And I think so many times we don't realize how we're coming across. Um, even there was a, another guy who, um, you know, very different person, very highly successful um, Hollywood producer, really, really um, insulting, narcissistic, um, you know, which so it, hard to picture. So hard, right? So you hard can't to imagine picture. This. Um, but underneath, when you when you get to know someone and you see their tender spots and their vulnerabilities, and and there was a tragedy in his life that he never ever talked about. I didn't know about it for quite some time. Um, you know, you start to see a can different side what, of them. I, you, I don't want to spoil it because then okay. it's like a it's a little spoiler in the book. Okay. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, it was a huge shock to me, and I want I want people to experience the shock the way I did. Okay, because I think it's really important to see that you can feel one way about a person mm -hmm. and really find them extremely abrasive, and then just want to hug them. Yeah. Um, and so I think, but he was shooting himself in the foot because everybody was an idiot, you know, in his, in his view, you know, he knew better than everybody else. Nobody knew how to do things right. He had to handle everything because everybody else was, you know, incompetent. Um, and, um, and he started to see sort of, you know, where that was coming from. And he started changing and his marriage was falling apart. Finally, his wife was saying that she was going to leave. That was sort of the impetus for, um, for his, his realizing that maybe he was doing something. And how about his girlfriend? Was she going to leave? He was, no, he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't like that. I mean, that's the thing. He was, he, he never, you know, he would never cheat. He was not, he was not that kind of person. He, he just, he very much, um, you know, didn't, couldn't see other people's perspectives. Right. And he, and, and, you know, by externalizing everything and saying everybody else is an idiot, um, nobody wanted to get near him. Right. And, it, and in his mind, not necessarily consciously, was he in survival mode and that's why everything was so amped up was because... He was. He was definitely in survival mode and he thought he was in survival mode because of all of the external, you know, professional pressures and the other pressures that, that he was experiencing with his kids and other things. Um, 
but really there was an external pressure, which is the spoiler that I don't want to reveal, right. um, that, um, that he wasn't even, you know, wanting to talk about that he thought he could just kind of, you know, um, you know, put it in its own little compartment and that it would stay safely there. Yeah. How, how'd that work out? Yeah. Well, well, it <laughs> didn't. I mean, it manifested in, in all of these behaviors and, and, and ultimately, and he, he was, you know, he couldn't sleep and, um, you know, he was, he was really suffering yeah. and no one would know if you looked at him from the outside, no one would know. How many be- behaviors outside of, uh, you know, biochemical, you know, uh, disorders, how often do you think somebody's bad behavior underneath it is some type of fear oh i think we're completely ruled by two things fear and love and i think that sometimes it's hard to tell them apart so sometimes we think we're acting out of love and we're actually acting out of fear i think of the helicopter parents yes yes that's a perfect example yeah and in relationships too um you know in in romantic relationships i think so much of the time we think we're doing something loving but really we're doing something that is about our fear of abandonment right if i do this nice thing for you maybe you'll prove my worth to you by doing something for me in return uh you know i see that a lot as opposed to just giving from the joy of giving Uh, Right. And if you're not getting something in the relationship, instead of trying to indirectly get it by doing something for the other person, hoping that they will then love you, see you, um, that you can talk to them about it. You know, some people don't realize it sounds so simple, but it's really hard. Yeah, because if, if we never saw the play performed for us, how are we going to know the script for it? It's, right. Oh, I, I know I couldn't. And the, the other thing is that when you talk to someone, you, you're doing something different. You're changing. And so many times, even if we're miserable, um, the misery is better than the fear of the unknown. So every time you change, there's loss, even if it's positive change. You have to give up something that you had before. And even if, if, even if what you're giving up is just familiarity, which is no small thing, you know. Yeah. But if you change and if you start, you know, um, relating to people differently, it's kind of like you're almost like you landed in a, in a strange land and you don't know the customs there and you're kind of feeling your way around. And it's really scary because you yeah. don't speak the language. You don't know the customs. You don't know what their reaction you is going to be. What, right. And, and also, if you bring something up, that person might respond well or that person might say, oh, I'm not good with that. Right. And then you have to change a lot of things in your life that you don't intend to change. Yes, you might have to pack up your shit. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I think one of the greatest benefits of, of having difficult conversations is not only is it an act of self-love for yourself, but you are giving that friend or that partner an opportunity to show their character. Right, right. And also, if you really care about that relationship, um, you know, you're going to want to have something more real with that person you know there are relationships we have that they just kind of float on the surface and that's fine but there are people that we really want to have something deeper with and if you're afraid to show up and see what whether they're going to show up then nothing's going to change in that relationship and you may say well that's just fine because i just want to be with this person but eventually that person's going to end up in my office or somebody else's saying i feel so empty i feel so lonely yeah it's being in a relationship that is that is not working uh, can be e- even lonelier than being single. Right. 
right? Yeah. Because you don't, because nobody understands it because you're not, nobody really knows what you're going through. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this thing. A, a colleague of mine has this theory that, um, that on Facebook, that when people start, um, you know, people who are long married start um, posting these like incredibly romantic posts on Facebook, three months later is when, oh, we're splitting up, yes. shows up. They're trying to convince um, themselves that, the, that they're in love with all the posts or right, what? Well, how do they deal with their pain, right? They try to they try to sort of, you know, make it look different from it, what it is. Yeah, I'm not saying that that happens with everyone. And this is right. just a, a theory that a colleague has. So I don't know yes. how much water it holds. But, um, but I think it's true that when you are with somebody and you can't show up and be yourself with that person... Um, you know, you're going to feel very lonely. Yeah. And and ironically, the reason you're probably not leaving that relationship is you're afraid of being alone, which right. you're going to be anyway if you're not your authentic self. Right, right. So many people have these fears about, you know, being alone or never being loved or, um, you know, they have these, these um, you know, if they have a choice between between two equally viable things, I'm lovable, I'm unlovable. Um, you know, I'm worthy. I'm not worthy. So many times people will believe the negative one, yeah. even though they have evidence for the other one. And so they hold on to that negative one and think, I'm not going to try for something better. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put myself out there because, you know, it won't, it won't end well. Yes. Or think it, you know, thinking I deserve better. That means I'm arrogant. Mm. You know, or I'm full of myself. It's so easy to confuse self-shaming and self-flagellation with humility and discipline. (laughs) Well, I think, I think there's a difference between, you know, what we call maybe self-esteem and self-respect. I think that sometimes we, we are so disrespectful to ourselves. One of the things I deal with constantly with at work at therapy is talking to people about how unkind they are to themselves mm-hmm. that if they if they could transcribe the voices in their heads all day long and if they ever said that to anyone you know a friend a child a partner that person would leave immediately oh, yeah. um but they're so um critical of themselves right. and it's it's incessant what are some of the mean things you say to yourself I think people are always fascinated and share about this in your in your book a bit a bit about what's going on in your head when you have stuff outside of the therapy room where you're the therapist and maybe those thoughts are bouncing around in in your head while while you're in session or are, what what's it like to be in therapy and to be a therapist yeah, I think it's really important. As part of our training, we do go to therapy because it's really important to see what it's like to be in that experience. It's a very unique thing, right? Where you're sitting face to face with someone in a room with no distractions, no screens, nothing beeping. Um, and it's just the two of you and you can hear each other breathe. It's, it's, uh, you know, so I think, I think that it's important for therapists to experience that. And with my therapist, I experienced the same things that people experience with me, which is, does he like me? Does, you know, when you see somebody else when you're leaving and they're in the waiting room, you know, is that person more interesting than me? I want to be the one that he likes to see, right? right? Um, you know, what does he really think about me? Um, you know, all of those questions. And I think therapy is one of the few places that we can be our most, truthful about our lives because the therapist isn't invested in what you 
um, what you reveal in the way that someone in your life will be invested in what you reveal. And so I think sometimes, you know, I hear things that nobody else in, especially with men, men will say, um, I haven't told anybody this. And women might say, the only person who knows is my sister, you know, Mm -hmm. or my best friend or whatever. And then what do they proceed to share? Um, you know, something, uh, about something that they feel is shameful, which, you know, to me is usually on a scale from one to 10 on the the shameful scale. It's like a one, but to them, it's like a nine. Right. Um, so it's, it's interesting. What, what are some of the greatest hits of things that people cause themselves anguish over that are really not a big deal? Um, I'm trying to think of how to describe it because it all comes down to they express anguish over something that they might have done that would cause someone not to like them. Yeah. And that someone could be when they were growing up a parent. It could be in school when they were a kid. It could be at work in the present. It could be in their relationship now. Um, It could be something that happened with their child. Um, But people get, get... very they're very hard on themselves so there's very little room for error in their lives Mm -hmm. so when they do something like humans do that they regret um it's very hard for them to not beat themselves up over it so forgiving themselves is a is a difficult one seeing looking at themselves through the eyes that they would look at somebody else with well they worry so much about getting somebody else's forgiveness and I think that that's really futile because I think that it's really important that they can find a way to be okay with what happened and to learn from the experience. So if you just keep doing the same thing over and over and you quote unquote forgive yourself, well, <laughs> that's not really, that's not really, uh, you know, how one forgive. Forgiveness is really about, I forgive you because I know that you're going to do better next time. Mm-hmm. Or try. Or try to do better next time. Or that you're aware of it. Or that you knew that you hurt someone and that that mattered to you. Mm-hmm. So the forgiveness isn't so that so that you can feel better about having hurt someone else. Right. You know, you're the one who, who perpetrated that. So it's not about that. But it's about saying, you know, everybody does this sometimes. Like, I'm human and I'm learning from it and I'm getting better at not doing that. Anything else that uh, you'd like to uh, share, uh, maybe around the ways that people get in their own way or something, a theme from the book or experiences being a therapist? I think the biggest theme in the book is that we grow in connection with others. And so many people, they might be surrounded by others, but they're not really connecting with them. Give an example, if you would. I think an example is a married couple who, you know, they're like co-computing at night all the time and Mm -hmm. they're always on their phones and they're not really, um, you know, they don't really know much about each other's inner world. They're not checking in with each other. Right, right. I mean, they're, you know, it's very superficial. It's, I mean, I think a lot of times it's kind of about logistics, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not really, you know, uh, uh, knowing what's going on in the other person's life, and and they they really don't have a, they really don't have a sense of what the other person might be struggling with, um, what the other person might be experiencing that's that's positive. Um, there's a lot of just like 
you know, ships in the night that, that where they pass each other. And I think that sometimes that's because of just life is very busy, but other times it's because they've never really learned how to connect. Mm-hmm. And I think too, um, you know, just in the world, I think we don't, we don't connect enough with other people. Even if we're, you know, at the post office, it's like, look the person in the eye and, and be friendly with that person. So many times people are on their phones, yeah. not even paying attention to the person right in front of them. It's disrespectful, but it also, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's like a, like our souls are starving. Yeah. We're Especially s- in Los Angeles where people avoid eye contact, like, like it's going to, give you, you know, the plague. Right. Well, just stop staring at a screen and, and start looking at the people around you. When you're at a restaurant, do you really need to be watching TV? Right. You know, can't you be having a conversation with the person you're with? Yeah. Acknowledge the busboy. Say hi. Say thank you. Right. Right. And and I think that w- what people don't realize is it's not just a question of respect. It's a question of it will make you happier. Yes. It will, it will lift your mood. If you're in a bad mood, the best thing you can do other than maybe go for a run is, um, is go out into the world and interact with people. It yeah. is the most healing thing you can do is to just connect with people. It will, it will do something for your soul. Yeah. I, I love, uh, petting other people's dogs like Mm. if they're at a coffee shop or i mean of course i always ask first you know is your dog friendly is it okay if i pet your dog and it's just such a natural icebreaker and i get to pet a dog um or if you know somebody's uh in line in front of me you know if i see them wearing an item of clothing that i'll like I'll, i'll say oh man those are such cool shoes where'd you get those and i feel my energy lift i feel it recharge my battery um I could I couldn't agree more. Uh, so your book is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Um, we'll put links up to it. And uh, is there a website as well? Yeah, it's lorigottlieb.com. L-O-R-I-G-O-T-T-L-I-E-B.com. Uh, Lori, thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Many, many thanks to uh, to Lori. And be sure to check her uh, her stuff out. And speaking of checking stuff out, I want to tell you guys about a podcast I think you might like. Uh it's it's called Directionally Challenged, and uh, the hosts are uh, Candace King and Kayla Ewell, and they thought but by the time they're in their 30s, they'd, they'd have life figured out, uh, but big shocker, they don't. So on their podcast, Directionally Challenged, they stop and ask for life's directions from friends, authors, creatives. Uh, some of their guests have included Top Chef's Gal Simmons. Uh, comedian, actor, director, and former guest of this podcast, Aisha Tyler, uh, Bachelor Nation's Becca Tilly, The Giving Keys, Caitlin Crosby, Vampire Diaries, and Roswell actor Michael Trevino, and YouTube personality Grace Helbig. She is hilarious if you've never uh, checked her out. I would love to have her as a guest on the podcast. Uh, so listen and subscribe to Directionally Challenged wherever you listen to your podcasts and do it now. So we have some uh, some more surveys. Uh, this one is filled out by a woman who calls herself, my skin doesn't fit. This is a struggle in a sentence. And about her depression, she writes, it's sort of like amnesia, like I know what I need to do, or at least I think I know what I need to do to get better, but my attempts are too weak or the solutions aren't strong enough. That the things that used to make me feel happy and whole are now too far to be reached or too large to even attempt. That I feel like I once knew, quote, how to be human, and now I can't seem to figure it out. 
that feeling of being just overwhelmed and not knowing where to even begin. And your brain is just saying, bed, bed is where it begins. Your pillow will give you directions. About her anxiety, all of my doubts and fears and everything I need to tackle and which feel are too much are constantly being announced by the guy at the end of the commercial who talks really fast. About her compulsive eating, my overeating feels like I just don't have enough. Not food, but I'm filled up with something that I need. But I am not filled up with something that I need, and I need to just keep eating until it almost hurts a bit so that I can know that I'm full of something. So good. So descriptive. Thank you for that. Uh, A person who uh, is non-binary and calls themselves the flower power ranger writes about their depression. My dysthymia feels like I got the bumper car that wasn't fully charged. Everyone else is whizzing around having fun and I'm just crawling along getting bumped. God, that's so good because that feeling when the depression really sets in is like that feeling when you have the flu and it hurts. Your skin just hurts. Noises hurt. And it just feels like everything is too much. Too much and not enough at the same time about uh, their bulimia, never too full, never empty enough, about their compulsive overeating. Any available space in my stomach is a potential home for bad thoughts and feelings. And then a snapshot of their life. My weight fluctuated as a result of my disorders, and I went from being treated like a peer by men to being treated like the furniture, mostly part of the background, easily replaceable, useful when needed, and annoying if I'm in the way when they want to get through. Thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out (laughs) by maybe the best name yet, a woman who calls herself Prolapsed Emotions. Uh, and I'm just going to condense this a little bit. And I actually think this could also be a uh, awfulsome moment as well. But uh, she, for the earlier part of her life, was a bit of, of a mess. Uh, came from kind of a, a cold home and had relationships that were not connective at all. And she writes, my best friend had had enough of me talking about my negative feelings and told me to come live with her for a while. It would be fun, and we always wanted to live together anyways. She thought maybe my moving in, I would get my confidence back and I would be able to land a job. After a few months, she accused me of stealing her stuff and didn't want me in the house whenever she wasn't home and didn't believe that I really was trying to get a job. She would call me names and let her boyfriend talk down to me and say how useless I was. I was constantly drunk and always on Tinder, hoping to find someone who would make me feel loved, to take me away for a while. One guy wanted to pay me for sex, and I turned him down because I'm not that kind of girl. To clarify, if other people hook up, that's totally fine. Do your thing, but I can't bring myself to sleep with someone I don't love. She tried to convince me to do it as I owed her rent money for staying with her for so long. She said she would drive behind the car to make sure nothing bad happened, so I finally said okay. While in his car, 
I realized that she was nowhere to be seen, and I broke down crying. Luckily, the guy was just really horny and not at all a bad guy and took me home saying, you deserve better than this. My friend had said she had lost sight of him and just went home. I didn't have any service on my phone at the time, so I could have been kidnapped or killed and she wouldn't have cared. Today, I'm at home, a real home, listening to the birds chirp outside, uh, outside my window. I'm enjoying my weekend before I have to go back to work tomorrow, the first real job I've ever had, a job that appreciates all the hard work I put in and has given me two raises in the year I've worked there. A job that was originally 12 hours a week is now full-time with benefits. I go home every day to someone who loves me and cherishes me, emotional baggage and all. He wants me to talk about my trauma. He wants me to get better and be the person I know I can be. I'm surrounded by my favorite things and surrounded by wonderful people who accept me for who I am. I've matured a lot, even going so far as to message old friends that I've wronged and apologized and have, re- and have reconnected with a lot of people I've shut out due to depression. I've cut out my, quote, best friend, and I feel like a weight has been lifted. But I also feel like she died, having someone who meant so much to you just be gone. I'm picking up new hobbies. I can say confidently uh, that I'm terrible at cross-stitching, and my graphic design could use a lot of work, but it's fun, and it makes me feel good. Sometimes I can't help but cry, because I cannot believe my life is this good. I'm learning new things about myself every day and new ways to identify and fix my problematic behavior that I've developed. I feel like a whole new person, and I love my life. For anyone who feels their life is over, it isn't. There's always a plan for you, and the universe sometimes puts you through hell and back for you to get back on track. It isn't fair that you have to go through so much, but it really makes you appreciate the overall end game a whole lot more. I look back at my life, and it makes me sad, but I'm, I'm in a much better place now. Please love yourself and cut the toxic people out of your life because it's funny how one positive influence in your life can turn you into a whole new person. Thank you for that. And you know, I was thinking as as you were sharing that you were constantly drunk and and just on Tinder all the time and you weren't paying for rent. It's like, I I think that that, you know, your quote, best friend and her boyfriend certainly had, you know, a reason to, you know, be miffed at you but the way that they did it you know calling you worthless and saying instead of sitting you down and saying hey you know this is we're feeling like we're being taken advantage of and you know it just take it from there have that difficult conversation instead of just unleashing their anger at you but some people either aren't ready to have difficult conversations or don't know how to. And it's not that I think they're they're bad people. They just don't have the tools. And life is too short to have people in our lives that disrespect us. Thank you for that. This is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Don Prickles. And... It's actually, I, I think this is, uh, well, I'll just read it. Snapshot from his life. He, he struggles with ADD and PTSD. He writes, I was sleeping the most beautiful sleep as the sun was just rising. My cat was sleeping on my chest like always. I'm drifting in and out, not quite ready to wake. Bliss. 
I feel the cold touch of her nose on my lips. Awe. It's like little kisses. Eyes still closed, I smile. Her purring feels warm. Again, the gentle, cold press of her nose on my lips. Feeling so awesome, I slowly open my eyes to start the day and discover that her head is pointed at my feet and that that's not her nose. Oh, love it. Love it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself, My Vagina Makes My Decisions. She is in her 20s, identifies as bisexual, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. I would say more than that. It sounds like a chaotic environment to me. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, She doesn't specify what that is, but she writes, During my teenage years and early 20s, I was very promiscuous and definitely engaged in sexual activities that were unsafe, though I never openly objected to anything and usually sought out partners. Um, I guess I'm curious because when, when there is promiscuity, And a lot of the things that she describes, as you'll hear in this survey, it almost always is triggered by some event or events from childhood, but there aren't really any that she describes here. And as I was reading this survey, I was wondering, um, because her mother, her mother fits the profile of a lot of the mothers who were either overtly or covertly incestuous with their with their kids, um, and I and I just wonder if there's something that she's minimized. But again, it doesn't. That's just my curiosity. She's been emotionally abused. My mother has a lot of mental health issues and has never sought help. I feel she may have narcissistic or borderline personality disorder, struggles with alcoholism and gambling, and bipolar disorder. We've always had a difficult relationship, and she was very neglectful during my childhood. She's a single parent, and I don't really remember her being around. Today, I'm 25. We don't have much contact, speaking on the phone every so often, but nothing more. I don't share much of my life with her, even though sometimes I desperately want to share things that are going on with me, but I have to learn not to trust her, and everything I share eventually becomes some sort of ammunition for the future. A couple of years back, I went through a really hard time with my partner and work, and I decided to leave my job and move out of the house with my partner to have a refresh and rethink my life. It was a really hard period for me, and if it hadn't been for my counselor, I don't think I would be here today. Over this period, I moved back into her house, kept myself to myself and was working on sorting out what I was doing next. Within one week, she said she was fed up with having my shit in the house, which was essentially a backpack of clothes, and kicked me out. She called my sister in front of me and started crying and saying I was crazy and had a, quote, look in my eye and was being awful to her. As soon as she hung up the phone, the tears stopped and it was terrifying. She said she never liked me. After this, our relationship hasn't been the same, and I knew I would have to either cut contact or have limited contact. After this, I was on the verge of homelessness for a couple of months, but with the help of my partner, friends, and my counselor, I managed to get back on my feet. 
any positive experiences with the abusers. She's a strong woman, and my father died when I was five. My sister was 10, and my oldest sister was 15. I know she's been through a lot and had a shitty childhood herself. Many times we went walking together with the dogs, and she can be a really nice person to be around, but I never felt completely safe, and she can change at the drop of a hat. Boy, do I relate to that. Darkest thoughts. I think about sleeping with almost everyone I meet. Sometimes it is in-depth. Sometimes I sort of make plans for it, and other times I just initiate contact with them as if to make it in, quote, option for myself if the opportunity presented itself. Darkest secrets. I've cheated on every partner I've ever had. I've just ended a four-year relationship with my boyfriend, who is a wonderful, wonderful man, and we had a great relationship. Two years in, I cheated on him with an old sexual partner who was very toxic on a very drunken one-night stand. I also recently cheated on him again with another guy, and I split up with him shortly afterwards because I can't keep doing this. He doesn't deserve it. And and the, the, the reason that I said the things I said at the beginning of this is because these are all the signs of somebody who has experienced sexual violation of, of some sort or another. Um, and... You know, on the surface to people who, who don't understand trauma or neglect, this just looks like a quote, you know, horny person that, that is, uh, you know, without morals or ethics. And that's not to excuse the, the, the cheating, but for people who choose sex to cope with their feelings rather than to connect with someone, it's really, really often the result of being sexualized as a child or an adolescent and that's how they learn to express their emotions um and it's, so it's not about being dirty it, it's about just finding better tools to deal with the emotions sexual fantasy is most powerful to you cheating on my partner sleeping with people who have partners random sex with strangers or people i just met and underneath that is a fear of intimacy, letting people get close. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to, in my opinion, all these things are my opinion. I'm, I'm, I'm not a therapist, but um, I, I'm, I'm somebody who rarely jaywalks, and I think that's got to qualify me for this. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'm sorry I keep fucking up. I never know if I'm making the right decision. I keep making mistakes. I keep hurting people. I'm trying so hard, but I can't trust my instincts. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could feel whole on my own. I want to make a great life and be the person I know who I am deep down. I just don't know if I'm ever going to be strong enough to let myself be happy. And I don't think it's a matter of strength. I think it's a matter of trying to do this on your own when the best part in my experience of healing is human connection especially with people who have a shared experience or shared feelings um and that is a great soothing part and so then that becomes a tool instead of the acting out sexually have you shared these things with others? Yes, I have a great counselor and some great friends, but I always feel like a burden and needy. And a lot of uh, therapists don't really understand sex addiction, and so they don't recommend support groups 
to the people that they're, they're counseling. How do you feel after writing these things down? Still confused. I feel like I can't put into words everything I want to say. I feel like an asshole thinking about the things I have done. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Live your life for yourself. No one else can make you happy or complete. You can only truly love in a relationship once you love yourself. Refrain from unhealthy sex and look after yourself. And if you can't resist the compulsion to refrain from unhealthy sex, then I would say seek help because you deserve it. You deserve it. Thank you for that. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a guy who calls himself not today about his depression, a python squeezing mediocrity, about his codependency. I believe deep down that if I can fix you, you will fix me. It's not attractive. Uh, about his PTSD, the world is burning down and everyone else is looking for marshmallows. Oh my God, that is so good. Snapshot from his life. After a surgery in my groin area, the nurse in recovery woke me up and asked me to pee. I asked how the surgery went in a very groggy voice, and she told me the surgeon had cut a tendon during the surgery. I asked her what that meant, and she was immediately in a panic. She very nastily said that he had done me a favor and that if I didn't pee, she was going to catheter me. I asked her why she meant what she meant by a favor. Her reply was that the tendon cut would make my penis bigger. I immediately asked for another nurse. She said she was all that was available and that I wouldn't remember anything. I pushed as hard as I could to pee so as to avoid any further, quote, help from her. Later, while in bed, they discharge you from, in the bed they discharge you from, she came into the ward to ask the supervising nurse if I was okay and announcing rather loudly, isn't it ironic that the man with the smallest dick in the world now has no balls? My mother was bedside to take me home. When the discharge nurse returned, I asked to see a patient advocate. She told me none were available and handed me discharge papers to sign. It was just like the things my uncle would say to me as a child after fucking me in the ass. And once again, I felt that no one would do anything to help. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That, uh... I've had a lot of surgeries and I've I've encountered some some people that were cold but that is fucking beyond the pale. This is an awful moment from a guy who calls himself Billy Beer Can and he writes I'd fallen months behind on taking my beer cans to the redemption center so I had a particularly large quantity. I loaded them into a shopping cart, at first having the thought that doing this in two trips may be prudent, and then dismissing the idea within seconds. I began wheeling the cart through the parking lot, and soon I heard the telltale sound of aluminum hitting pavement. What must have been a hundred cans had fallen out of the top of the massive trash bag on top of my cart. There was a stiff breeze that day, so the cans continued to roll in the general direction of the wind with a constant deafening metallic din. I squatted down and started gathering up what I could, knowing that there were many out of my reach that would not be worth chasing. I proceeded forward, and this time the box underneath the cart slid forward and toppled over, again sending many cans astray. 
At this point, I'm mortified because I know there are people in the parking lot judging not only my clumsiness, but also my apparently severe drinking problem. To my amazement, I saw two people scampering after my cans, weaving their way between parked cars to pick them up and put them in an empty cart. I was so incredibly humbled by this, having not the slightest expectation that anyone would help me. One of them was a woman in workout clothes, and the other guy was a biker with a helmet concealing his face. In my humiliation, all I could say to them was, I need to get my life together. The guy in the helmet replied, so do I, man. They helped me load my cans back into my cart and even walked with me to the machines in case I lost any more of them. The small but extremely kind gesture restored my faith in humanity, at least for the rest of the day. If you're curious, the grand total redeemed value of my beer cans was $18.70. That's for 374 cans. Though I'm pretty sure I had 20 bucks worth of cans to start with. Oh, thank you for that. And I, I, I hope you get some help for your drinking problem. If, uh, if it is a problem. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself, I have camp town races stuck in my head more often than I'd like to admit. And about her depression, she writes, fighting the urge to just lay down and hibernate every second of every day. Oh my God, I have been there and it is the worst, but it can get better. It can get better. And... The thing that's so difficult is when we're in that place, just the idea of seeking help seems as overwhelming as brushing our teeth. So I'm sending you some love. Sending you some love. Victoria gives us a snapshot from her life. Uh, She struggles with depression, ADD, anxiety, and... um, being a victim of a sex crime. And she writes, uh, an ex-boyfriend recently passed away and I could not grieve him in front of my current boyfriend. That broke my heart that he has no compassion for anyone but himself. And I wanted to just point something out. And I'm, I'm sorry for your loss and uh, the, the stuff that you struggle with. But that's a really common thing that we do sometimes is that we blame somebody for our actions when in reality you had the power to grieve your boyfriend your ex-boyfriend in front of your curtain boyfriend but you chose not to and the powerful healthy move is to be authentic and if your current boyfriend has a problem with you grieving over somebody that you know who died, then have a conversation with him when that comes up. And if he handles it in a way that is passive-aggressive or ignorant or dismissive, have a conversation about that instead of sweeping this shit under the rug because these things don't go away and bit by bit they push us away from our partner. And you deserve to have somebody who supports you when you're in pain. But blaming him on for that is taking away any responsibility you have to be your authentic self. So I hope that makes I hope that makes sense. But thank you for sharing that. 
And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Dogwood. And she writes, Recently, my anxiety has been overwhelming. I had three pretty severe panic attacks in one week, which hasn't happened to me for a long time. A lot of my anxiety has to do with being abandoned because I'm too much or because my feelings are too big. This past Saturday, I woke up filled with anxiety again. My partner and I lay in bed while he spooned me, and I was once again overcome with fear and shame for how anxious I was, that I was ruining our relationship by acting this way, and I was terrified because I couldn't stop myself. I started deep breathing, trying to calm myself down, fighting the feeling in my chest as hard as I could. As I started to calm down and the tightness began to ease, I had two thoughts. You need to stop doing this. One day, he's not going to be able to handle it anymore, which was pretty standard. But then I had a new thought. What if he can? What if he can handle it? What if he can support you and witness your feelings and it's all okay? I instantly felt my anxiety recede and the only thing that was holding me was him. I told him what had just gone through my head and he just squeezed me tighter and said, yeah, I can. It's all okay. I'm still a little anxious, but I'm carrying that moment and that profound feeling of relief with me. And I do feel like things will be okay. Ah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But if we don't express what it is that we need or we feel, we don't get to find out if that person is supportive of us and that we blame them because we're mind reading. But you know, in my opinion, the route to a relationship or a potentially healthy relationship is giving the our partner opportunities to show their character and to communicate. Because if you don't know what kind of communicator or what the character is of your partner, then you're just... future tripping in your brain, trying to mind read, becoming passive aggressive, and then expressing our feelings in ways that are unhealthy, like cheating on them or overeating or lashing out in anger and on and on and on and on. And um, I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't, you know what? Go fuck yourself. I'm tired of you all up in my face. Wow, I don't know where that came from. Maybe you and I, the listener, need to sit down and have a conversation. Maybe some stuff's been building up in me because I feel like there's certain things I can't do around you. Wow. Hmm. I think the listenership and I might need to go to joint counseling. I don't know if you can fit thousands of people into a therapist's office. I bet there's a big one out there. I bet there's a therapist somewhere that their office is in a stadium and there's just two chairs at the 50-yard line. And then one day, there's a knock on the door, a couple thousand people file in, and they're like, see, I knew. I knew I didn't over-rent. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this week's episode. I hope if you're struggling that this past 100 minutes has let you know that you're not alone and that we can we can get better and healthier and become our authentic selves but it doesn't happen overnight and it's not simple but it's so worth it 
and I would like some type of recognition that I avoided using the word journey. I'll talk about the band journey, but I try to avoid saying our journey. That's, that is right up there for me with the word sacred. Those are, uh, those are words that usually come with a toga and sandals. Anyway, uh, sending you some love. And again, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.